Good morning. I'm really thankful and glad I can be with you this morning um, to be in chapter 27 of Matthew. Um, The theme that we'll see throughout this chapter is one of rejection, mockery, irony, kingship, and suffering. They're seen in great detail in this chapter. Matthew uses these themes to in a not so explicit way to show how scripture is fulfilled. He draws words and imagery from Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. And unlike in previous chapters where Matthew will interject with, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet, he simply allows the events to be unfold. Matthew 27 and other passion narratives is the climax of the Bible story. In Genesis 3, sin had entered into the world through the rebellion of Adam and Eve, and man could no longer dwell in the garden with God. In Genesis 3.15, there was a promise for a son to once again restore a relationship between God and man. And at that point, the Bible, the Israelites, and Jewish converts had been waiting for this curse breaker to come. And today we will see then we will see the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. I will, be, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Matthew has also been leading up to this point in his gospel. In chapter 1, verse 21, it says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is Jesus and God's mission to to defeat sin and restore a rightful relationship between man and God. Let's prepare our hearts this morning with prayer. Father, we thank you as we have just prayed this morning for um, the good gifts that you have given us. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of Jesus. We pray that this morning we would see our need um, and just the beautiful gift that you have given us through him, and that is life everlasting. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've divided Matthew into two parts. The first one is from verse 1 to 26, the rejection of the king with two interruptions. The second part is verse 27 to 64, which is the mocking of the suffering servant with three interruptions. So we'll read verses 1 to 26. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it to yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord had directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. 
But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And he said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, Je- having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So our chapter starts where chapter twenty six ends. Jesus is abandoned by his friends and is in custody of the temple leaders. We read that the chief priests and elders took counsel. They thought about it and drew up a plan to put Jesus to death. This is utterly evil. The law these Jews followed clearly said, thou shalt not murder. As Karen mentioned last week, the priests and elders already gave the guilty verdict to Jesus. Matthew, at the start of this chapter, shows the hearts of these men and that it is wicked. They arrested Jesus, who claims to be the Son of God, with the intention to kill him, and they found a way to put it on paper. So verse 3 to 10 is our first interjection. Matthew interrupts the forecoming death of Jesus with the death of Judas the betrayer. Judas all of a sudden had a change of heart, or so it seems. He brings back the 30 pieces of silver in hopes to free Jesus. However, there are at least three things the chief priests don't care about. The money, Judas proclaiming Jesus is innocent, or even Judas's sin. Let's look at it a bit closer. It says when Judas saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind, meaning he changed his mind about betraying the Christ and instead wants to free him. Judas, thinking that if he simply returned the money, Jesus would be uncondemned. He would be freed. But this is much more about money. This is about the heart of the temple leaders. They wanted Jesus' ministry to be stopped. They wanted to end Jesus' life. The chief priests do not care. Judas also realizes that it is because of his betrayal that Jesus is going to die. He betrayed innocent blood. In this act of seeking forgiveness, Judas proclaims and witnesses that Jesus is innocent. But with this proclamation, the chief priests do not care. And lastly, Judas says he has sinned. Everything that he did that got Jesus arrested was because of his sin. The chief priests do not care. This is a great tragedy. They say, what is that to us? What is that to you? You're the chief priest. 
You're the ones who are supposed to help Jesus. You're the ones who are supposed to help him atone for his sin. Clearly, the priests have lost sight of what they were supposed to do. They were to be the, they were to be the ones interceding for sinners to God. But they were so blinded by their own sin, their own hate for Jesus. And the blind cannot lead the blind. So Judas is in despair. He has sinned and the chief priest can't help him. And thus his despair leads him to his death. You almost want to have sympathy for Jesus or for Judas. But you see, Judas didn't have faith in Jesus. Yes, he felt bad for what he had done. There's remorse, but he didn't believe the words of Jesus. Jesus said he was going to rise on the third day. Jesus said he was going to go to Galilee. Jesus said the Pharisees are whitewashed tombs. Judas didn't believe Jesus' words. Judas knew where Jesus was going to be. He should have gone to Jesus. He should have gone to the cross. This interruption is sadly not one that is good. The weak attempt of Judas to make things right is still a rejection of Jesus and what he had spoken. We too can feel bad for our sins. We can despair over them, even unbelievers do. But what we do when we sin proves us different. Do we repent of our sins to God? Do we go to the cross? Do we believe that Jesus is the final sacrifice and also our, our high priest who intercedes for us? Do we actually believe that? Or do we try to atone for our own sin? Do we, tr- do we put prayer and church on hold till we feel better about ourselves? Do we try to find satisfaction and acceptance elsewhere? Our flesh is weak, and we will give into temptations of sin without the help of God. But when we repent and pray for help to overcome sin, God gives us his word, his spirit, and his church to help us fight sin. But more importantly, when we repent, we are freed from the death that sin brings. Do not despair in your sin, but go to Jesus. Next, we see the actions of the priest. They don't want to put the money in the treasury of the temple because it's blood money. They specifically say in verse 6, it's not lawful. All of a sudden, they don't want to do something unlawful. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. To add to the irony, it's not just Judas's blood money, but theirs as well. That was the price they paid to have Jesus arrested. That was the price they paid to have Jesus hung on a tree. Judas isn't the only betrayer. These men betrayed the work God had these men had betrayed the work God had them do, and that was to help the Israelites live righteously before God. These men rejected God and they rejected their, his son. Verse 7 to 10 speaks of what they did with the blood money as fulfillment of scripture. This scripture comes from Zechariah 11. Now, our Bibles say it's from Jeremiah, and that is because when there are allusions or some parts of Scripture that is in in another book, and if it's in a major prophet like Jeremiah, the the major prophet is given the credit. So this is the only time in this chapter that Matthew will interject with fulfillment of Scripture. It's about sinners who reject God and his shepherd. So why show this was to fulfill Scripture? I think Matthew is showing his audience that all this evil, betrayal, plotting, even the mockery of the 30 pieces of silver, which was the price of a slave, the rejection of a son, it's all under the sovereignty of God. Nothing is out of the bounds of God's will, even evil actions by men. 
This should comfort us. God uses the evil done by these men for good. The death of Jesus was for our good. So Matthew turns our focus back to Jesus. At the beginning of Matthew's gospel, we saw King Herod concerned about a boy who claimed to be king, or who would claim to be king. He wondered where and who he was. As we draw near the end of Matthew, we see a governor who worked on behalf of a king, asking Jesus who he is. Is he the king of the Jews? Jesus doesn't directly answer his question. Yes, he is, but not in the sense that Pilate is thinking. Jesus isn't just king of the Jews or Rome. He is king over all people. He is king over animals, nature, the stars, and the moon. He is, not, he, sorry, he is king not because he is just next in line, but because he was in there in the beginning. He created everything. He is king and creator. Pilate wasn't thinking this when he asked his question. Now, Jesus also can say no because, one, that wouldn't be true, as I just explained. And two, it would avoid the cross that is set before him. Jesus is submitting to the Father's will. Just, Jesus simply answers with, you have said so. To add to this trial, the chief priests and elders are in the room with them. They are accusing and witnessing that Jesus is claiming to be king. We see the Jewish leader's rejection continue. Pilate is amazed that Jesus isn't defending himself. He might even be thinking, even if you are guilty, Jesus, say something to defend yourself. Explain your side of the story. Say anything to avoid a gruesome death. This is why Pilate is amazed. We should be amazed too. How often do we try to defend ourselves, especially when we're in the right? Or sadly, even when we sin. Jesus, being completely righteous, opens not his mouth. Now, verse, seven, sorry, verse 18 says that Pilate knew the temple leaders were envious of Jesus, and that is why they want him dead. Thinking that Jesus was probably more liked by the people than the Jewish leaders, Pilate holds a public trial, the people choosing Jesus' fate. He would have thought, since Jesus is probably more liked by the Jews, they will surely pick him over Barabbas, an insurrectionist. In verse 17, Pilate asks the people who they want, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ. Do you want the murderer or the savior? Even the way Pilate words his question shows he's nudging the people to pick Jesus. Verse 19 is our second interruption. Ironically, as Pilate is on the judgment seat, his wife interrupts with her own judgment. Now this would be out of bounds for any woman, even the wife of a governor, to interrupt while giving a sentence. This showed the seriousness this woman had she was convinced by a dream that Jesus is an innocent man. This is actually quite beautiful to her ears as we hear some truth, especially from the Gentile woman who has nothing to gain from saying these things. However, it is short-lived and rejected as we get back into what's happening while Pilate was receiving a message from his wife. The chief priests and elders persuade the crowd. They convince or pressure the crowd to release the murderer, the priests held a sway over the people back in that day, especially when it came to Roman rule. The Jewish people would immediately rather listen to the priests than Pilate. Not only did the priests persuade them to pick Barabbas, but also they managed to persuade them to destroy Jesus. I think Matthew is trying to show the malicious hearts the priests have and their complete rejection of Jesus. So Pilate is caught off guard. He almost thinks they didn't hear him right the first time, so he asks again in verse 21. 
They confirm what he had heard, and they want Barabbas. So Pilate asks the question again, but more focused on Jesus, who is called Christ. One last time, don't you want the man who claims to be the Messiah? Instead of them saying, wait a minute, Jesus the Messiah, the man who was being praised when he arrived in Jerusalem five days earlier, free him. Instead, they say, let him be crucified. Here we see a half defense for Jesus from Pilate. Why? What evil has he done? Pilate is almost trying to persuade the people to pick Jesus. Barabbas, murderer, evil. Jesus, Christ, righteous. But it doesn't work. With rage and evil in their hearts, they cry out again, let him be crucified. Destroy him. As the crowd gets rowdy, Pilate shifts his concern to himself. He now concerns himself with his role as governor to keep the peace and his own conscience. He addresses his conscience first. He washes his hands. This was to physically show that he was going to take respons- that he wasn't going to take responsibility for the death of Jesus. Because a riot was starting, he obeys the crowd in verse 26 and scourges Jesus and has him crucified. Some governor to be persuaded by people of lower rank. In verse 25, it says that the Jewish people take responsibility for the death of Jesus. Now, not every Jew alive then, or to whom Matthew is writing to, or to a present-day Jew, is considered firsthand guilty of the death of Jesus. Many commentators would argue that it is just those specific Jewish people present at the trial who are responsible, and that in 66 AD, many Jewish rebels who went to war with Rome died brutally, resolving the curse they put on themselves. But also, in Acts 3, 11 to 26, Peter Peter preaches to a crowd of Jewish people, many who are present at this trial, and urges them to repent and believe, and some do. The power of the death of Jesus can forgive all sins, even rejection of the Christ. The Jewish people here, however, aren't the only ones to blame. Pilate is just as condemnable. He ordered Jesus to be scourged. He didn't have to do that. And he ordered him to be crucified. Also, realistically, he didn't have to do that since he was the Roman ruler. There is complete rejection by the Jewish people and the Gentiles. So we'll move on to our next section, which is verse 27 to 64. This is the mocking of the suffering servant. But before we continue, I think it'd be beneficial to read Psalm 22. A lot of what happens in this section is direct quotes and fulfillment from this Psalm, and Matthew's readers would be able to make the connections. So let's turn to Psalm 22. For the sake of time, I won't read the whole thing. So let's start in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Verse 16. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. 
for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Verse 28. For a kingship belongs to Yahweh, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the ones who could not keep himself alive. We can turn back to Matthew 27. We'll read verse 27 to the end. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on his head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Gagatha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lem us me. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah, and one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs, were, tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this, is what, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a, a rich man from Arimathea called, named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen shroud, and he had cut in the rock, sorry, and laid it in his new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sit there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, 
Sir, we remember how the impostor said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So if we look back at Matthew verse, Matthew chapter 27, verse 27, we see Pilate's soldiers, which are about 600 men who are still with Jesus after they have scourged him. This would be a device with leather straps and either bone or metal attached to each end. They would use it to lash Jesus' body with. Sometimes pieces of flesh would come off the person and organs would be exposed. Now, I don't want to make you picture what happened to Jesus to make you feel bad but to give you an idea of the physical suffering Jesus is enduring. Further suffering incurs by the battalion. It first says they stripped him, which they most likely wouldn't have done gently. They placed a robe on his marred body, and they set a crown of thorns on his head. As many of you already know, this isn't just a random gift of attire. The battalion was mocking Jesus for his crime. Hail, King of the Jews, they say. What king is shamed the way you are, Jesus? What king suffers the way you are right now? Ironically, they are coronating Jesus. And to add to the irony, 600 men bend their knee towards the suffering king. And ironically, it is because of this king was it was because this king was shamed and suffered that he deserves to be praised. And ironically, it is because this king bore our shame that he deserves to be praised. He wasn't at the mercy of other people, but because he was and is merciful to die for us, that he deserves to be praised. Hail King Jesus. Every knee will bow because he is worthy. The lamb that is slain will forever be his glory and not his shame. That is his right to reign and that is his right to rule. Matthew continues to show how the soldiers mock him. They spit on him and beat the silent prisoner some more. And finally, once they got their fill of laughter, they inflicted pain once more by returning Jesus to his original clothing, and they lead him to his death. Now, if you're curious like me, Golgotha in Latin is Calvarium, and that is where we get the word Calvary. So Jesus has reached the place he is going to die. Now, they offered him wine mixed with gall, which could have been a type of numbing agent, but Jesus wasn't going to drink this, this cup of ease. He was going to consciously fully endure the wrath of God. In verse 35, we read in one quick sentence that Jesus was crucified. No added details like some of the other gospel writers, such as the nailing of the hands and feet. Matthew moves on to what the soldiers are doing. They're betting for Jesus' blood-stained clothes. He also mentions they sat down and watched. If soldiers left, it could be possible that someone could take the person down from the cross and that person live. So Matthew is showing us that Jesus wasn't about to be taken down. Now we really get into the mockery and irony of this chapter. In verses 39 to 40, Jesus is being mocked by the Jewish people. 
they pretty much say if you have so much power to destroy the temple and then rebuild it, come down from the cross. Save yourself, they say. If Jesus saved himself, there would be no destruction of the old temple and no new temple. He will rise on the third day and be the new meeting place between God and man. They say if he is the son of God to come down, surely God can't be restrained. But it is because he is the son that he won't come down. The son has a perfect relationship with the father, a perfect plan to redeem sinners. The son is not restrained, but is showing restraint by not asking his father to send 12 legions of angels. In verse 41 to 42, the chief priests and elders mock Jesus too. He has enough power to save others from their physical infirmities, but not enough for himself. He won't come down because he needs to save souls and not just physical bodies. It is because he is up there that, he's, that he will spiritually save people unto God. We are so thankful that he did not come down. They mockingly call him the king of Israel. What king is overruled? If he comes down, we will see his rule. Not true. They saw Jesus do many things and didn't believe him. Some people will say, I'll believe Jesus if he shows me himself right now. I'll believe Jesus if he answers my prayers. I'll believe Jesus if he lets me have whatever I want. Do we believe Jesus for what he has accomplished for us on the cross? Do we believe what the word of God says? Or do we only choose to believe when we get what we desire? The priests continue and say, if he really is from God, God will save him. But he does trust God, and God will vindicate him. God will raise him from the dead. The irony of all this mocking is prevalent to Matthew's readers and to us. If Jesus saved himself, we wouldn't be saved. If Jesus came down from the cross, we would be on that cross suffering the wrath of God. If Jesus didn't suffer and die, we would still have to offer sacrifices for our sins. So from the low to the high to the outcast, they all mock Jesus. In verse 45, we see that it is 12 p.m. and it goes till 3 p.m. So it would normally be pretty bright out, but there is unusual darkness. This can be seen as God's judgment on his son. This moment is sorrowful, agonizing, and just as Jesus bears the sins of the world. And creation is rightfully responding, unlike the people there. From the time of Jesus' trial before Pilate to now in verse 46, we have not heard anything from Jesus. At last, Matthew breaks the silence with a cry from Jesus in his own words, Aramaic. Matthew gives us real-time words spoken by Jesus. Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, there's a lot of theological density to the statement that I won't go through. But at this point, Jesus is feeling separated from the Father. The separation is what finally breaks the silence from the suffering servant. He was rejected by the Jewish leaders. He was rejected by the Jewish people. He was rejected by the Gentiles. He was rejected by his friends. He has been marred beyond comprehension, but it is the rejection from the Father that causes Jesus to cry out in agony. God has forsaken his son because a holy God cannot stand sin. This should cause us to grieve. Jesus, who was righteous, innocent, holy, sinless, who has shown compassion to the weak and lowly, bore our sins on the cross, and God has forsaken him. 
2 Corinthians 5.18 says, For our sake he has made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God forsook Jesus, that way we would not be forsaken. But the people there don't quite catch what Jesus said and thinks he's calling Elijah. They believe Elijah would return the day the Lord came. But Matthew's readers, and we know Elijah won't be coming. At the Transfiguration in chapter 17, Jesus explained that John the Baptist represented Elijah, making the way for Jesus. So Matthew doesn't finish the scene on the cross with Jesus saying, it is finished, but it ends it with Jesus utterly alone and even misunderstood. But he is sovereign over his own death. <clears throat> Verses 51 to 54 are responses to Jesus' death, and this is important. This is what the death of the Son of God has done. Jesus' death brings final judgment to the temple. Now through Jesus, we can meet with God through prayer and his word. We can do that whenever we want. We don't have a curtain separating us from the presence of God. We don't need one person to enter on our behalf for a few minutes. No, we have complete access to God. Not only that, Jesus is the final lamb that will be brought in for sacrifice for atonement of sins. Our past, present, and future sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. The temple is destroyed, and with his resurrection, built with Christ as the foundation and our new high priest. Ironically, as Jesus was separated from God, his death brought us near to God. We also see creation responding with an earthquake. And then Matthew comes in the resurrection of bodies with what happened after Jesus rose into this part, because Jesus' death is what brings us life. His death defeated death, and his death is what resurrects people. In in verse 54, we see our first interruption from the mocking, and is instead replaced with worship. We see Gentiles responding in faith. Even faith the size of a mustard seed is faith. This is the first time in this chapter that we see worship. The entire chapter is flooded with mocking and rejection of Jesus, and now we see a pause in the mocking. It's almost like, finally, they get it. The creation responds to the death of the Son of God with darkness and shaking. And the pinnacle of creation, humans made in the image of God, respond as we see with the resurrection of bodies, and just as importantly, worship. The death of Jesus should cause us to worship each and every day. Our second interruption is in verse 55 to 56. These are official eyewitnesses. Matthew will focus in on the two Marys, but he states in verse 55 there were many eyewitnesses to the death of Jesus. They served Jesus during his ministry, and these are also followers of Jesus, even to the end of his life. However, Matthew still displays Jesus' abandonment by stating the women were off at a distance. We see Matthew zoom in on Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. She was seeing what it looks like to sit on Jesus' left and right. It would be quite something to see Jesus' naked body hang from the cross as she thought back to the request she asked Jesus. Our third interruption is from Joseph of Arimathea, though it doesn't feel like an interruption. It's more like a breath of fresh air. Joseph was a rich Jewish man. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Matthew shows us that Jewish and rich men and women 
can enter heaven when they put Jesus before their money and belongings and even their identity and use it in a way to serve God's church. This is the first time wealth takes on a positive connotation. Do you remember the rich young ruler? If the rich can't get in, then who can? Well, they can, when Jesus is worth more than their earthly possessions. Only a rich and politically connected man can gain access to Pilate. Only a rich, can, only a rich man can afford a clean linen shroud, a new tomb with no other dead bodies, and a big stone. And Joseph gave it all to Jesus. This is a beautiful act of worship. But it's also short-lived, as we see in verse 62 to 66. There is again mockery of Jesus when the Pharisees call Jesus an imposter. They say his first fraud is claiming that he is the Messiah, and the last claiming that he would rise from the dead. But the main point I think Matthew wants us to see is that these Pharisees were awfully afraid that Jesus' followers were going to take his body to make it look like a resurrection. And unlike Joseph, these Pharisees seek out Pilate for their own personal gain. They want to prove themselves right, that Jesus is not the Messiah, that the Jewish people need the Pharisees. And so they ask for the tomb to be secured. Three times we see the word secure in verse 64, 65, and 66. Matthew wants his readers and us to know that Jesus' dead body was secured in a tomb. There was no way for Jesus' followers to steal the body. They, would, they wouldn't have been able to get past the Roman soldiers. And so for the Pharisees to keep a name for themselves, they secure the tomb. And that's how Matthew ends his passion narrative. With a highly secured tomb, with a man inside wrapped in linen, who claims to be the king of the Jews and the son of God. A man who claimed he can destroy the temple, but was instead destroyed himself. Matthew has given us many witnesses who saw the death happen, and they could testify to it. And to add, he was rejected by everyone, including God. But unlike those people present at that specific time, we know what's going to happen. Matthew has even alluded to it. There is, there is going to be a resurrection. Jesus will conquer the grave. The last fraud isn't a fraud at all, but a victory against death. We know this. There are witnesses. The two Marys, as we had just read about, we'll also read about in chapter 28, are witnesses of the death, burial, and resurrection. We also have Romans believing that Jesus is the Son of God because of what happened at his death. This isn't the end, but the beginning of the new covenant that Jesus talked about in chapter 26. Jesus' body has been broken, his blood has been spilled, and we are in a new and everlasting relationship with God the Father through God the Son. This is what the entire Bible has been leading up to. We are at the apex of the climax in redemption history. The seed of Adam has crushed the serpent's head with his bloody heel. There is no, there is no saving from sin without the suffering, rejection, and death of the Savior of Jesus. There is no way into the Holy of Holies and right standing with God without shed blood of Jesus. There is no enjoying holiness and perfect communion with God without Jesus bearing the wrath of God. Do we see the importance and the necessity of contemplating the death of Jesus? The new house that Jesus builds is not one marked by separation from God and continual sacrifice, but one lived on the basis of once-for-all sacrifice and complete communion with God. We are no longer under the weight of sin, separated from God, but under grace. Death has no sting on those who are believers of Jesus Christ, but is now a sweet embrace. 
The blood of Christ has brought us near to God. Let us pray knowing that we are welcomed and give thanks for the one who was mocked, the one who was rejected, the one who was slain, and the one who was faithful to the end. Let's pray according to that. Father, we just thank you for Jesus. I just think now of the song of Give me Jesus, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And Father, we pray that Jesus would be our sole focus, um, even during Christmas and um, throughout the rest of our years, Lord. We pray that we um, would worship him the way that he is ought to be worshipped, Lord. That he has borne our sins and he has um, experienced our rejection and our shame and our wrath and we are so thankful for him, Lord. Um, so we praise you for Jesus, and we thank you that he died for us, Lord. And we thank you that he also rose, as we will read next week. And uh, we thank you that we can now pray to you and read your word and, and just worship you without um, uh, human intercession, but that we are being interceded by Christ himself. And we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.